Life Out Loud is a literary nonfiction podcast series that features real student stories. Born in a John Jay College creative nonfiction writing classroom in the fall 2015 semester, Life Out Loud seeks to diversify the perspectives typically shared in the CNF genre. Our project aims to amplify voices seldom heard through artful truth-telling simply because we believe that all stories matter. We make them, and they make us. You can always listen at lifeoutloudpodcast.com. Hi there, and welcome back to Life Out Loud, a literary nonfiction podcast through which we tell true, maybe all too true stories. I'm Karen, one of your hosts today. And I'm Selena, back again for the second half of the third season, ready to get into our sixth episode entitled Best Laid Plans. And I'm Mariana, also back again and ready to get into this episode. And I'm Carlos, super hyped to explore the lives of these new authors. And I'm Rebecca, also back again. In this episode, we explore three stories about authors who've made definite plans for their lives. They put the work in, thought it through, dreamed it to existence, or at least they thought they did. Because, as we know, our plans and dreams don't always turn out exactly as expected, which doesn't make them any less meaningful necessarily. It just makes them turn into something else. All right, so this piece is by a new author to Life Out Loud, Daniela Providence. Daniela K. Providence is a senior at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, majoring in Criminal Justice BA and minoring in Creative Writing. She hopes to one day become a New York Supreme Court Justice, as well as a fiction writer. Born in Toronto in a West Indian household, Daniela loves food, sports, music, and family. She's the oldest of five kids and is the only girl. When she isn't writing her up-and-coming mafia trilogy, Daniela is singing, playing piano, and doing schoolwork, or falling asleep while trying to catch up on Glee on Netflix. Thank you, Karen. Let's take a listen to Daniela's piece entitled A World of Blue. Daniela, you have that look on your face again. Is there something you'd like to add? <sighs> Professor P puts me on the spot once again. This is the fourth time in the past hour. Around this time my sophomore year, I was in the same type of class with some of the same faces with this same professor. Now, sitting in the advanced version of this hate crimes course, I think of how to respond, definitely more ready than sophomore me was. Well, I start with a clear, strong voice. I think that hate crimes specifically against members of the LGBTQ community are especially violent because of the fact that men often put themselves in the position of men they attack, which makes them really uncomfortable. It causes them to act out on fear. Another student scoffs. <laughs> what are they scared of? Some guy in the class says. No one is forcing them to be gay or anything. In my mind, a chair flies across the room and becomes a new shiny accessory to his face. How can he be so insensitive and dense to something so real? <laughs> in reality, I turn in my seat to face him as the rest of the class holds their breath. You say that as if everything is that simple, I say as calmly as I can. The reason heterosexual men brutally assault homosexual men is because they see themselves in their position for a split second. They switch places with gay men mentally, and then they become afraid of that possibility. It scares them that there's nothing stopping them from being gay, too. I release the pen I'm holding and see that it's made a red indent in my palm. I mean, he's challenging a widely held belief in the field. Come on! My professor stays silent for a second before saying, that's the kind of passion I want to hear from the rest of you. Nice work, Daniela. Going home after that is tough. 
I feel like I probably shouldn't have raised my voice or seemed so angry or I don't know. I think I sounded fine. I just sometimes second guess myself. But the semester goes on and by the end I see my A, bold and proud, posted on my CUNY first, earning me a triple chocolate mousse cake with vanilla ice cream. I eat it slowly, with a slightly bent fork. Later, as all seniors in my major do, I stare at the dancing Google letters on Chrome and try to think of how to narrow my capstone focus. Strange enough, I can't. There's so many options I can explore, and I care about them all. It's like giving me a giant bag of Jolly Ranchers and then telling me to only pick one. Who would be so cruel? I receive a text from Jay. Danny! 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 This is important! Are you there? Answer me! I look at the 14 unread messages. Danny, Professor P is taking Maria and Rosa to a conference related to hate crimes and he's looking for another student. You should go. You get to work with the president of the school. I told him I'd ask you. Go ask your parents so I can tell him you'll go. Hurry up, this could be amazing for you. My parents say I can go and my confirmation email comes sooner than expected as I accept this new journey. Guess I found my thesis topic. Plus, it will allow me to work closely with the president of my school, a very rare chance. Most importantly, I have the chance to sit at a table of highly respected experts in law enforcement and hate crime advisory groups as they talk about something that does not get enough attention, hate crimes. Specifically, one of the major issues is law enforcement's refusal to even acknowledge or report hate crimes as hate crimes most of the time. Mostly because these types of accusations lead to complicated court processes, since they're considered way more serious than non-biased crimes. And because cases that involve hate crimes end up meaning way more work for the responding officer. I get it, it's complicated, and our law enforcement is underpaid, overworked, etc. But still, that doesn't matter. It shouldn't be the victims that suffer from this systematic neglect. This is an injustice and disappointment in our justice system. But at this meeting here with law enforcement and hate crime advisory groups and members of an academic community like John Jay, they'll have to acknowledge that hate crimes in fact do exist and is a very present problem. See, this meeting is big too because it's rare that law enforcement and other groups who advocate for hate crime victims come together in the same room at all. That's yet another big part of this problem. Bottom line, we all need to be talking more and I'm ecstatic to be at the forefront of this. Talking! Being a part of these important conversations, this is what I've always wanted to do, why I became a criminal justice major. (sighs) Professor P copies the president of the school in an email letting her know his three picks for students to work on this initiative. When she responds back from her personal email, I swear my heart drops to my toes. She's requesting a meeting with all of us? Holy shit, how did that happen? Wait, is this really happening? How am I supposed to confirm I can attend the meeting when I can't even confirm that my hands are still attached to my body? For the first time ever with my major, with this work, I feel like I'm really going beyond the classroom with something that matters. Still experiencing earthquake-like motions through my fingertips, I slowly type up my confirmation email and attach the mini autobiography she's requested. After staring at my screen for four hours, I finally press send and then immediately try to beckon the email back. Mm, did I spell check enough? Did I include enough? Was that too little information? Too much? What if she hates me? Is she going to think Rosa and Maria are more qualified for this than I am? <sighs> a few days later, things get even more real. Walking into the president's office feels like taking a field trip to the Louvre without the mass threats of security watching my every blink. 
When I get in, I see that the room actually does look like a museum. And no, what are these dark wooden frames of the Obamas standing with our college president? So, I was very impressed with the biographies I read. The president says, looking us all in the eye, she was, she was, I'm really doing this. Professor P engages the conversation while my mind drifts off to the room again, the place I've envisioned a thousand times in my head since freshman year. I've never even seen this floor until this year. The blue carpeted runway into this magnificent realm of professionalism and authority. What an honor. After that meeting, a phone conference is scheduled for which we're to speak with several organizations located around the country. We talk about some of the research we've done as students on this topic and how the meeting is going to be structured. I'm impressed with how much I know and how prepared I am, how ready I am for this. Now listen, ladies, Professor P says the next week we're leaving for D.C. When you go into this conference, you can't be silent. These people want to hear what you have to say. Daniela, you had some pretty good comments in class. Now is your chance to make these people know, well, not getting hostile or anything, okay? We need these folks to attend the next conference. I try to laugh, but start coughing instead. No pressure, right? Marie and Rosa do laugh because they know they got this. He picked them first. They're the ones he's most confident in. Is he worried that I'm going to mess this up? Am I going to mess this up? No, no way. I got this. I will show Professor P that I can be reserved, yet still speak thoughtfully and analytically. I'll show him. We load our things on the train and grab our seats. Rosa and Maria sit together, leaving me with Professor P. On the ride, all food trays are occupied with food for thought as we review piles upon piles upon piles of papers and notes. We ask whatever last-minute questions we have. I struggle to keep my hazelnut latte from Dunkin' Donuts down as I picture tomorrow. <sighs> my body yells at me when we finally arrive in Washington, D.C. I'm forced to do a bit of stretching to loosen up. When we walk into Union Station, my iPad is out and pictures capture evidence of my arrival. At the hotel, a warm feeling covers me like a blanket fresh out the dryer in the winter when I'm told the room I share with Maria and Rosa is in my name. They hang back as Professor P and I walk to the front desk with our IDs out. I'm really doing this. A hotel room in my name. I screenshot the lobby with my eyes as my memories add a new place to the first time folder. Are all hotels this fancy? We go up to our rooms and get settled in. I open my suitcase with shaky hands and take out my outfit. I put it on a hanger in the closet. We order takeout, but my knotted stomach doesn't allow me to finish. Maria knows I'm freaking out if I don't finish my pasta of all things. Over and over, I can't stop running scenarios in my head, even while me and a glass of Hennessy get to know each other. I know this stuff. I know that hate crimes are biased acts of violence against specific groups of people because they belong to that specific group. I know that history shows that the same groups over others tend to be targeted more. What we need at this conference tomorrow is for everyone to actually listen to each other for once. Because if we can't get this conversation going tomorrow, how will things ever get better for victims of hate crimes? I hear myself speaking up in front of everyone, hear myself saying all the right things. I got this. Rosa and I call it a night not too long after. Back in the room, everyone claims a space on either one of the two beds we have to share. It takes three episodes of Family Guy to really knock me out. In the morning, I'm ready first, so I FaceTime my stepmom. The room is really pretty. I'm excited for today, I say into the mic, barely holding it together. Are you done preparing everything? Her sleepy, accented voice fills my ears. 
Yep, I already have my questions written down, and I've read some more articles, so I feel more than prepared. I smile. <sighs> it's time to go. With Marie and Rosa leading the way, we step into the conference room. Inside are various hate crime advisory groups and police chiefs from different states. I pause by the door, even though Maria and Rosa have already taken their seats. Professor P sees me and smiles. My iPad dings with a message from him. You have two years of experience and research on them. Don't forget that and make them know that today. Also, don't forget to take a lot of notes. Giving him a thumbs up, I slowly move through the room. I watch the chiefs talking to each other on one side of the room. Their suits are all tidy and pressed while their ties hang neatly from their throats. They speak in hushed tones as their eyes sneak glances at their opposition on the other side. In what feels like two rooms away stand the advisory groups. Some focus intently on remaking pre-made coffee while others mark their targets around the room. To each other, they give friendly smiles and warm pats on the shoulders. To their challengers, they perform the common ritual of hellos while trying to raise the corners of their lips in politeness, even though it looks more like a face they'd make when the anesthesia wears off too soon. I slowly head to my seat and put down my things. Today, I'm 5'8 instead of 5'6. My blazer and silk shirt do nothing to warm me in this room, though the AC is turned off. The room feels like a fresh winter day. Becky, the conference coordinator, quiets everyone with a bright good morning and fixes her small pile of papers in front of her before beginning her typed-up speech. Then, the president starts the discussion with her first question of the day. What are the issues? She asks boldly. A police chief speaks first and captures the wide eyes of everyone in the room. Others who want to speak place their tent cards up and wait for the president to call on them. Another cop speaks next. He's in agreement with his co-worker, who is smugly nodding. We don't have a connection with communities because we are targets too, he exclaims. I can't even go home in my uniform without being looked at differently. I take that down in my notes, trying hard not to throw my pen into his face. I'm not sure a lawyer can help me plead not guilty to that case. Of course he would change the entire issue and make it about the cops instead of the people. Instead of about the people we're here to talk about. People who are the victims of hate crimes and the police's resistance to filing these cases as hate crimes. More people talk as my pen colors the page with syllables. Maria Rosa and I are looking at each other with the same question. When are we actually going to speak? Finally, we are told to take a lunch break. My chair and I stay connected as I introduce my sandwich to my stomach. The room is colder than it was for breakfast. Any colder and it might start to snow. I rub my arms quickly, but stop when I catch a cramp. Maria and Rosa are talking to advisory groups. Smiles stretch across their faces as they gather knowledge for their thesis. I, on the other hand, am thinking about how similar these people are to that boy from class. I won't let it bother me, I decide. I have something to say, and I'm ready to say it, and they will listen. The president is back in the room and starts asking questions again. My pen moves smoothly between the red and blue borders of the notepad until I hear it. And now, she's saying, we'd like to hear from our students. Daniela, would you like to start first with some of your thoughts? Me? First? Um... No, I will not be afraid. I got this. Finally. Sure, I replied to the ambiguous amusement of my audience. My notes flash before my eyes quickly, but it's not about the notes anymore. This is coming from me. I am one of the experts here. I know this, I think, as I hear myself finally. We need to acknowledge hate crimes as an actual problem, I start boldly, calmly, before we can actually do something about it. 
Not only are individuals being affected by the lack of acknowledgement, but so too are entire communities. Just because it's harder to prosecute hate crimes does not mean that we shouldn't do it. Everyone is tired of having the same talk, but nothing will get done until we approach this for real. I project my voice. There are 18,500 police agencies in this country. Only 50% of them participate in reporting hate crimes at all. And 90% of that 50% say that there are zero hate crimes in their community to report. Now I know that doesn't sound right. We all watch the news and see a Jewish man crying over the swastikas drawn on the door of his temple. We all see that African-American grandmother hiding her grandson's face from the noose hanging from the door. We know that historically, the U.S. has sanctioned some of these acts as legal action against minorities, such as lynching. <laughs> Why are we letting this repeat itself? We need to stop trying to fix the current generation and focus on forming ideas for the generation coming up because it's us that's going to be dealing with this soon, not you. I finally have a seat and see the president smiling at me. I am proud. I did it. And she seems proud. Maybe my voice will actually change the opinions of some of those here today. Two cops mumble under their breath as I sit down. After Rosa and Maria speak, we are told to go on another break to let what we said simmer. As I finally begin to relax, I realize just how proud of myself I am. I did it. A police chief then approaches me. You said some really good points there, young lady. I'm honestly impressed, he says with a slight look of entertainment in his eye. My chair starts to vibrate slightly as I shut my eyes and try to calm the raging storm in my chest. I know that expression. I know why he's impressed. He had not expected a young woman of minority status to come in and speak about reality, to know her facts, to call them out. He'd written answers without even seeing the questions. <laughs> the president resumes the meeting and asks another question. Before I even know what's happening, a cop starts speaking, and he's, he's changing my words, but saying exactly what I just said. He's barely even changing all the words of my previous sentences and claiming them as his own. He's spinning them and making it about the cops rather than the people. That's not what I meant, I want to scream, but I don't have the chance to talk again. That was my one chance. Another cop then does the same with what Rosa said. We both turn to each other quickly, but our mouths stay closed. I look back at my pad and start again. Let's be honest, I hear him saying. It's better to hire a white cop at times than it is to hire, and excuse my language, an asshole black or Latino cop. Wait, what? How did we get? My fingers forget their function as the pen rolls loudly onto the ground. I want to yell, you have some real nerve saying something like that in a room full of minorities. It's a wonder how you're still alive right now. But hear this, if you open your mouth to say something offensive one more time, I will cut out your tongue, you racist ass. But of course, I don't say anything. The president catches my eye and I pick up my pen again. There's a time and place for everything I've learned. Students have to wait for the presidents to call on them to comment, but by the looks on our face, I know she won't. She knows what I might say. We had our time for today, apparently. The meeting continues. When it's all over, the cops leave the room first. We have a debriefing session, but my mind hasn't left the past. I now understand why we don't get things done in this world. If every meeting always goes like this one, and if this one is one of the only times hate crime advisory groups and police chiefs even get together at all, then aren't we all just wasting each other's time? What's the point? Why was I even excited about this? I look down. 
There's a hole in my notepad several sheets deep, and the top of my pen is broken. I put down the pen and get up. There's nothing more for me to take notes on today. <sighs> on the trade ride home, we each take a seat for ourselves and let the day settle in. I watch the trees blur by and release a deep breath. I think about how Rosa and Maria cried by the end. How the president heard them out and let them express how they expected a much different outcome. I didn't cry, though. I simply took my suitcase and went home, wondering if maybe this wasn't the right thesis topic for me. Mm. Oh, wow. Okay. This makes me want to fight. <laughs> <laughs> this story is so good and it's, it's so important. It's a good yeah. story. Yeah, it's thank you for story. being here today. Yes. Thank and, you. And thank you for sharing the story with yeah. us. Yeah, definitely. Oh, mm -hmm. It's yeah. so hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I could only imagine. So this story revolves around hate crimes, which is obviously a very serious subject. And you approach it with a necessary amount of maturity and its importance, socially and to you personally as well. However, you do sprinkle these moments of humor and comic relief that never seem too heavy-handed. Did this come after it was written, or is this your natural view of things? Um, so, I don't, it didn't come after I wrote it. it. While I was writing, I just really spoke about everything, like every moment within that conference to me. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes I do really, like, weird things that come off as funny to others like <laughs> I, I don't know um i honest i didn't see humor in my story but i got a lot of oh, like yeah? humorous comments about it mm -hmm. so it was like oh maybe that is funny oh nice haha -ha. um <laughs> <laughs> i think it's also like relatability like we can yeah. all like we mm -hmm. see yeah. like the nervousness yeah. yeah it's like something we can all really do be like yep that was me yeah and yeah it was it was something like me and rosa the other student in the story like when we found out there was a bar in the hotel we were just like has to go beforehand yeah um didn't work. I stayed up as you like mm -hmm. read um, like for three episodes of Family Guy. So I mean, it calmed me down eventually until I actually got there and saw everything unfold. But mm -hmm. I think um, in terms of the other humor inside the story, that's just my personality. I think coming out. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, I think humor is something I resort to in times of like extreme stress or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. Same. No, yeah. no, that's really relatable. <laughs> very relatable. Very, yeah. very relatable. So at one point in your piece, you write, we need to acknowledge hate crime as an actual problem before we could actually do something about it. You discuss it throughout your story, but could you discuss with us now some of the issues surrounding the acknowledgement of hate crimes by society? Uh, that's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> so some of the issues um, like with hate crimes now in society is that mm -hmm. there's not enough resources to kind of tackle it as an actual problem. And mm -hmm. then on top of that, the hate crime statutes that we have go by state. So mm -hmm. each state acknowledges a certain amount of groups and certain groups in right. particular anyway. Mm -hmm. So um, for example, if you're a member of the LGBTQ community, um, you could be like safe in one and protected in one state, but mm -hmm. then you go to another and they don't acknowledge you as mm -hmm. a right. discriminated wow. group. Yeah. Wow. So what I brought to the table at that actual conference is having a uniform um, definition like of hate federal. crime. Mm. So you can't mess that up and everyone knows like this is the exact um, definition of a hate crime. This is what I have to do. The line mm -hmm. officers know the procedures they have to take when they see a hate crime and how to actually identify a crime as a hate crime mm -hmm. um, so that they don't really just throw it under the bus or just yeah. rip up the file and not 
file it at all yeah for sure because i know we see often that it's like people don't necessarily know like what rules their state has unlike anything actually like even things like age of like marriage i was looking yeah, into something yeah, recently people true. are like no i think you can yeah. here but really it's like another state that they're yeah. referring to and they mm-hmm. just heard about it yeah yeah same thing with like the death penalty it's 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 mm. it's it gets so confusing and yeah mm-hmm. there should be like state agency of course states should you know act as their own right thing but it gets so confusing when something this serious where like yeah. don't just get it twisted like yeah. like mm-hmm. with such it, it's just so easy for that to happen mm-hmm. it should be a national thing. yeah it should be a national thing because it's not like a hate crime is just you robbing someone because they're black like some of these people are actually dying and that yeah. is mm-hmm. murder is a federal crime mm-hmm. so why is it relied to on the state to kind of yeah. mm-hmm. pr- push something that originally is federal but just because it's a state um kind of thing that they have they're in charge of that all of a sudden mm-hmm. it just goes to them and if they don't acknowledge it it's like okay so i could do this and i could do that and the state mm-hmm. won't acknowledge it because that's not a part of our statutes but mm-hmm. yeah. i don't feel like that should even be a thing you know for sure definitely yeah that's really interesting um you mentioned how similar the people are at the conference the police officers um how similar they are to your classmate who made the comment in regards to hate crimes against members of the lgbtq plus community um saying what are they scared of no one is forcing them to become gay or anything um so i'm wondering what do you think a person's response to injustice reveals about their morals or ethics and values like what does that say about the people they represent and work for um well the reason i felt that the okay so my thought process the student in my class that guy he's in a criminal justice school possibly training himself to become a cop in the future mm-hmm. and he kind of represented that no that cop kind of represented what that student would have become in the future oh, in yeah, a yeah, sense yeah. so it's like it has to start off like where are you learning this Whoa. from? That that mm-hmm. cop comes from a different state. Right. I'm not gonna say which state, but um <laughs> mm-hmm. he comes from a different state mm-hmm. and it kinda like it took me on a really, really quick kind of timeline. Like, okay, you started here, you went to school, you learned this everything, you mm-hmm. went to training, you became a cop, and this is your viewpoint on this. I don't know if the state environment kind of helped change and mold mm-hmm. his mindset, mm-hmm. but for you to be in a criminal justice school in a very very like open environment on such a serious topic and Mm -hmm. then yes everyone's views is their views and you're not supposed to impose your own views on someone else obviously Mm -hmm. but it's like how can you how can you take in all the information you've learned looked at all the stories had actual real life experience versus the student and still Mm -hmm. have something like that to say Mm -hmm. you know so it's like for for me i think that all starts in your household, how you grew up, your mm-hmm. environment that you grew up in. I don't know the kind of things that he may have seen or what his parents may have taught him as a little boy. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, I believe that that's really where it starts in your own home as a young like kid, student. Mm-hmm. Um, just a little boy, just embracing your own environment. And based on your own journey as a person, mm-hmm. that kind of also molds your views. So I don't know, again, what he may have went through and what he mm-hmm. may have seen as a kid as he grew up or how people may have changed and pushed their perception of something yeah. that happened mm-hmm. onto him mm-hmm. so that he could view it like that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's how I think that it all starts within your community while you grow up, your own mm-hmm. like um, 
upbringing yeah that kind of thing yeah i think that can get really embedded into a person like especially learning basically how to view the world from you know the people that are around you when you grow up in your household and then bringing that um out into the world yeah for sure and also some of the things that we grow up with sometimes the college environment is kind of like the safest place where we can be challenged yeah we're have mm-hmm. challenges going on yeah right. especially exactly. with like so many different viewpoints and um, especially in somewhere like Manhattan where you have such a diverse set of students coming mm-hmm. in and yeah. diverse set of uh, professors everywhere around mm-hmm. right? right so a lot of it does start like at home in your own neighborhoods and with your own families but when we get to college is kind of when those things are really like tested but it's also like important to have spaces like this like John Jay that kind of educate for more than just whatever it is that people like grow up with necessarily mm-hmm. like it, and have a safe place to kind of challenge those beliefs mm-hmm. and and maybe form your own you know there's always going to be people that maybe don't but like the chance is like higher with the thing like education and like mm-hmm. academia mm-hmm. um and going from there let's discuss the importance of people of different background that people of different backgrounds have within like academia like academia we all know used to be a very like white male thing Mm -hmm. like and and now it's just like so much different so can we talk about the importance of that difference now so for me as an african-american woman i am the first in my immediate family to attend college Mm -hmm. well at least the entirety of college um and then still plan to move on to law school um and what i've gathered within college has definitely shaped and molded my mind in a way that i feel people in government fields and of high positions should be thinking in terms of what they take in how much they can take in Mm -hmm. and how open-minded they can stay in an environment that can either get heated or requires you to really keep your Mm headspace instead of like losing it and going off emotion instead of logic um Yes, so it is great that when people do get to college, they do from they do see that they are represented from a whole bunch of different backgrounds within their faculty. So they're mm-hmm. not just taught by one set race group or anything. They're set, mm-hmm. they're taught by so many different varieties of people from mm-hmm. varieties of places that can teach them what they learned growing up from yeah. where their community was versus um, someone who doesn't really have that much more experience mm-hmm. um, to kind of show for like where they came from, what they learned from their environment, plus what they learned in their own college as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the diversity of faculty is something that's really important. Mm-hmm. And it, it, I always think of like the necessity of this being accessible to mm-hmm. people of color, to people of different like economic standings, uh-huh. to people from different families, mm-hmm. LGBTQIA folks. Like, like I'm, I always think of the people that are like the only person of color in their like high school or the only mm-hmm. lgbtqia person i'm like if you can just get here and that's what sucks is sometimes it's so difficult for people to just get here mm-hmm. you know what i mean mm-hmm. whether financially whether um from supportive family i'm just like if you can just get here you don't know how good it's gonna be mm-hmm. to be have all these resources opened up to you mm-hmm. and be able to like talk to people about this kind of thing and reach goals and go to these kinds of like conferences that you went to mm-hmm. even if the response is shitty <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah it's it's important to have those experiences mm-hmm. you know definitely too 
opened my eyes up to what reality could really mm-hmm. be and what mm-hmm. I look forward to in law school. Oh, how yeah. to really <laughs> myself in and train myself to yeah. kind of like that everyone has their different views and as mm-hmm. extreme as some may be, like I have to mm-hmm. accept that as that's their view and respect them as a person. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. wow. If it was easy, it would be fixed by now. Oh, mm-hmm. that's true. So with that, thank you, Daniela. Thank you so for this much. awesome thank interview. <laughs> this was great. And the awesome story, of course. Right. Yes, and yes. the awesome yes. story, thank for you. sure. Yeah, this thank is all really important. Thank you for sharing your story and for sharing your knowledge on all of this with us. It was yeah. great having you. Thank you. being here. This is fun. <laughs> we can't we'll wait to have you back. Soon. Yeah, yeah <laughs> we're going to have you back. <laughs> this story is by another new author to Life Out Loud, Alana Alley. Alana is an ambitious and spirited English major at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. She is currently a senior and is super excited to graduate and pursue a future career in law. Alana has had a passion for creative writing since she was around 11 years old. Since taking a creative nonfiction class, Alana has allowed herself to open up and do the one thing that she avoided almost all of her life, write about herself. This has helped her in her journey to recovery with her PCOS, and she hopes to spread awareness through her writing. Thank you, Rebecca. Let's take a listen to Alana's story entitled Baby Fever. Do you want kids of your own someday? I drown out the nurse's voice as I count 10 little fingers and 10 little toes. My new nephew is beautiful. He's innocent. He's brand new. I carefully support his neck and watch eagerly to see his eyes flicker open for a second. My finger strokes his chubby cheeks, which make his mouth slightly part open. His blue and white swaddle blanket is wrapped snugly around him. My eyes quickly land on his head, covered in short, messy strands of jet black hair. Lana had black hair that exactly like yours when you've been born. My mom reminds me in her West Indian dialect as she watches him and I admire each other. Exactly like mine. My fingers reach for the soft strands. The nurse looks at all of us and smiles. He really does seem comfortable with her. She says to my mom about me and this perfect baby. I barely hear her, though. As I stare at the baby's black hair, I'm still stuck on the nurse's question. Do you want kids of your own someday? Come on, Lana. Answer her. From the moment that I started dating Alvin in 2014, I knew I wanted to have a family with him someday. We're 18 in our senior year and are known as the crazy couple diagnosed with an extreme case of baby fever, according to our friends. So, Lana, what are the names for this month? My best friends tease me as they catch glimpses of names scribbled in the back of my marble notebook, those which I will later show Alvin for approval. Now came the time that I dramatically throw my arms over my book, pretending I didn't want them to see, only to give in and watch proudly as their aws echoed at each name. During lunch, I bring the notebook with me and wait until no one is looking before him and I start our routine debate on who can come up with the cutest name. After an entire period of going over about five or six names, we settle on one we fall in love with, Anaya. We know we're too young to have kids and that we first have to get married, you know, because of tradition and all that. The dress will definitely be strapless, not too poofy or shiny. And that we definitely have to go to college, get our degree, get a well-paying job for us, blah, blah, blah. But still, we can't help but get excited as if we're planning on having this baby in a few weeks or something. 
We're a few months in and Alvin and I are gifted with a half day at school, an empty house, and a box of Trojans. As they say, we decide to take the next step in our relationship. I dig my nails into the sheets as the pain vibrates throughout my body. I look up at his face, a mix of pleasure and concern at the pain he's causing. But then he smiles, big enough so his dimples pop right out of his face. And that's enough to reassure me that we're doing the right thing. The next few weeks, I walk out of his room sore, but satisfied. Sharing my body with him is worth any cramps I experience after. I never knew you were supposed to feel that intense cramping after sex. I mean, was it enough I had to deal with these once a month? And I'm pretty sure this is supposed to feel way better than a period. I let it go the first time because the first is always painful, and I know that. After a few weeks, practice puts us in a steady rhythm, and it feels really good. But those post-sex cramps are still there. I don't feel good after. But it's nothing some tea and Tylenol can solve. No big deal. Sometimes we lay in bed and talk about the wedding plans I've been dreaming up in class. And he tells me about all the things he's going to do when he's a dad. So, Anaya. Anaya's her name, right? Yeah. Anaya and I are going to go to the park together, and I'll teach her to ride her bike. I'm going to be her favorite, he mocks, followed by his tongue sticking out of me. I roll my eyes and laugh as I imagine it myself. Yeah, we'll see if he's the favorite. Are you sure you want to do this? I don't answer him as I put the phone on speaker and continue pacing in my room. What choice do I have? Alvin, I missed it for this month. The cramps are there and they're awful, but no blood. Not a single fucking drop of blood. I say as my head drops into my hands and I find a spot on the bed that welcomes my body giving up on me. I know we always wanted this, but does it have to be right now? Hurry up and get here so we can go to CVS real quick before mom comes, I instruct. He hangs up. Door locked. On the floor. My face soaking his shirt. His hand rubbing my head. Pregnancy test on the sink top. How could I let this happen? I'm only four months into my freshman year at John Jay. I have everything planned. Baby comes after marriage. Marriage comes after graduation. Graduation is three and a half years away. Yeah, I'm dead. I suddenly hear my mom's voice in my head saying, when you have a plan, God does laugh, you know. Well, I'm sure he's laughing now. Maybe I should laugh too. But mom won't be laughing, that's for sure. No matter what happens, you know I'm not going anywhere, right? He says as we wait. I finally pull away from his shirt long enough to look up at him. Alvin, are you scared? I manage to ask as I get myself together. For some reason, no, he says. I've loved you ever since we were 15. You were my first crush. We've always wanted a family. So what if it happens a little earlier? I remind him that we're both born into tradition. I mean, Guyanese parents don't really go for this unplanned baby stuff. Everyone in the family greets you with a side eye once they find out, followed by some equally welcoming whispers. I remember when my cousin Rhea made the mistake of announcing her pregnancy at 17 to the entire family at her little sister's 14th birthday party. Everyone picked up their massive disappointment and judgment and put them on. 
I put on my mask, but it was different than the others. Mine was one of pity. She didn't deserve to be called a disgrace to this family, or a whore, or a child who wasn't raised properly like us. Her boyfriend sat next to her with his head down. I thought to myself he better keep it that way. He could never look at this family again. But he did look up to find a bunch of eyes staring hard back at him. Rhea ran upstairs crying, and I haven't seen her since that party. I heard she ran off with her boyfriend somewhere to have the baby in peace. I don't give a fuck about them, Alvin says. Not my family or yours. This is about us. This would be our baby. Our baby. Our baby. I keep hearing it in my head. It repeats, and each time, I feel more and more at ease. Until he finally interrupts my thoughts. I think the two minutes have definitely passed by now. I'm convinced I'm having a heart attack as he stands up and reaches for the test. I force myself to stand, but my eyes are glued shut. I'm not ready to see. There's no way in hell I'm ready to see a plus sign on that thing. Alvin's words mean everything to me. But how the fuck am I going to be a mom at 18? How am I... Alana, open your eyes and look. We're fine. I look at the test in his hand. The negative sign slaps me in my face. I eventually break my eyes away and look up to me his. He half smiles and then looks back down at the stick. I don't know what to say. Neither does he. Finally, he pulls me into a hug. I half hug him back. Taking that test was a stupid idea anyway. So after all this time, you guys are still sticking to Anaya, my best friend Diane Axis, as we all sit around in my living room and watch one of the screen movies on Netflix. Yep, me and Lana picked that senior year, and that's where her name will be whenever the day comes, Alvin says proudly. I nod my head along as I stuff popcorn into my mouth and press my finger into his dimples. I think they're going to look just like him. What do you think, Diane? She stares us down hard for a while until I burst out laughing, half choking on popcorn bits because I can't take her seriously. Before she can answer, Alvin immediately jumps in. Of course she'll look like me. She'll be cuter that way too. I shove popcorn into his mouth and begin my daily rant on Anaya looking just like me and how there's nothing he can do about it. I'm positive Diane thinks we're completely obnoxious, but we don't care. But then... I bend down to put the popcorn on the floor, and before I drop it, my stomach is heaving. These stupid cramps won't give me a fucking break, I swear. I let out a soft groan while doing it. I hope no one hears. I try to get up fast so no one notices. Alana, you're still getting stomach pains? When are you just going to go see a doctor? When did you become my mom? I want to ask Diane. I was already dealing with her on my back. I assured Diane that it's probably just cramps and hopefully a period is coming soon. I've been trying to work out more since I missed it again last month. I heard exercise makes it come down. So this had to be the starting pains. It's working. Alvin stares at me as I explain to Diane, hoping for reassurance too. Hoping he wouldn't have to take another test. I try to reassure him. I try to reassure myself. It's no big deal. (sighs) Exercising doesn't work. Praying doesn't work. Screaming and crying doesn't work. Mom tells me papaya is known for bringing down a period. I hate papaya. 
I sit down with a whole one and a spoon. I eat and cry. Papaya doesn't work. Sex can induce a period, a friend tells me. You've got to be fucking kidding me. I sit in class and can't think straight. I take a few more pregnancy tests on my own just to be sure. I go on the treadmill. I do sit-ups. I eat papaya. I have sex. I have no answers. I still have pain. Endometriosis? I struggle to pronounce out loud as I meet face-to-face with my laptop and try my best to sit still with the anxiety that comes with Google search self-diagnosis. Ouch, shit, I yell out as I feel the heating pad starting to burn my stomach through my shirt. As I try to fix this, I almost spill my coffee. No, I don't think I have this. Not endometri, whatever it is. I listen to hear if my mom opens her room door to come check on me. I'm not in the mood for a lecture from her if she sees my research. I know she'll just start telling me she knew all along I was hiding how bad these pains were. How she wants me to see a doctor right away. How I need to accept when something's wrong and face it head on. How I should never be weak, no matter what the situation is. I continue typing. Maybe I do have this. Wait, what the hell are fibroids? Oh dear God, please tell me I don't have fibroids. I start to feel dizzy. I think a room door just opened. I keep typing. My coffee's cold. Are those footsteps? Keep typing. Ovarian cancer? Nope. I shove the laptop off. Coffee makes its way in the sheets. Mom stands in the doorway and watches as it all happens. I fall apart. Lana, you know you need to get this pain taken care of. How long you plan on waiting? Men don't want anything happen to you. You know how much you hate the emergency room. Mom was right. Of course she was. And of course, anytime the accent came out that much, shit was serious. Lana, you got to tell me what this pain to feel like. And the awkward pause makes me look out the window, already knowing what she was going to ask. Hmm, I live on the third floor of my apartment. If I jump out, it'll kill me, right? And you got to tell me what you've been doing. Like with Alvin, you're doing something. Yeah, hopefully the fall kills me. Here I am, sitting on my bed, ready to do one of the worst things any brown girl can really do. I mean, it's any kid's nightmare to have that talk with their parents about sex. But when you have West Indian parents, <laughs> boy, don't get me started. They don't want to hear about that nonsense. You better be sneaky about it so they don't know. I mean, any West Indian kid knows you better come with some top-notch lies if you plan on doing it with your partner. For instance, the classic half days or classes getting canceled, so you're going to, insert female best friend's name here, house. Then you got to make sure that friend knows so she backs you up because you know a West Indian parent won't just call you, but that friend as well to make sure you both got your story straight. Then and only then do you proceed, and still with great caution. And if you get caught under the wrong circumstances, well, you better pack yourself in a box and ship yourself back to Guyana before they catch you. No joke. But then I watch as her eyes widen, look down, and then back up, but remain soft. I don't want you ever lying or hiding anything from me. Why be shame, nah? We is all human, Lana. What's important is you love Alvin, and you guys do what you think is right. I look out the window again and let out a breath I've been holding in for a while now. I'm more than relieved at her acceptance and the fact that we can be done with this conversation. She never fails to surprise me. She... 
I mean, if me been a you, me would have wait a little, but you know. <sighs> Thanks. Well, that's that. So when Misha called the doctor and make an appointment, you get Friday off, right? I try to explain it's probably just pre-period cramps. No big deal. We gonna go together. Don't worry. You can't run from this love. But I said it's no big deal. I swear I'm fine. I just, it's no big deal. Friday comes and I can't get out of this appointment. I'm sorry, Miss Ali. I hear a doctor telling me. Our results say that you have polycystic ovaries or PCOS for short. No big deal. What this means is you have these tiny cysts all over your ovaries and we need to get them to shrink as much as we can. No big deal. The symptoms include extreme weight gain, acne, irregular periods, and severe cramps. No big deal. If treated carefully and we help you out, then you can have this under control. See? No big deal. And then you can still have a chance someday at, well, having a baby. Wait, a chance? But you should be aware that there is a possibility of infertility with this, so... No. <sighs> but the names in the book, and the plans we made, and our friends teasing us, and the pregnancy tests, and Alvin's dimples, and me being the favorite instead of him. And... Anaya. Months later, as I'm holding my new little nephew, my fingers smoothing out his wisp of rich black hair like my own, I think to myself, this feels so right. My eyes meet the nurses and I pretend as if I didn't hear her question the first time, even though I'm still thinking about it. When I'm ready to answer, I signal for her to repeat herself. Do you want kids of your own someday? She asks again. Yes, I tell her. I do. Uh, <laughs> oh, my. Yeah. Look, when I say ow, it's not because I'm in pain. It's because like my heart just like it's it's experiencing a lot yeah. right now. And that um, last line, all of is this, just so good. Yeah, that last line is just ideal. Yeah. I read it the first time and I was like, wow, oh my <laughs> goodness, what a way to go. Yeah. This story For makes sure. me cry because it's so good. In the end, just makes my little heart. Like, yeah, right. <laughs> it so just like feels in pain. Yeah. yeah, thank you guys both for being here today. I say both because Alana is here, and then also Alvin, who we heard about in the story, is also Yay. here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so thank you so much for being here, no guys. No problem. Thank you for having us. No problem. Yeah. So throughout this, I like to really learn something about a story that doesn't really about a topic that isn't really talked about that much um some of our listeners may not even know what pcos is and since your story focuses on it so much could you please explain what it is some of the causes and treatments why it affects fertility or anything else you can remember besides the little like tidbits that you gave us sure um so pcos does stand for polycystic ovarian syndrome um a lot of the people i do come across and talk about this with are also unaware because mm -hmm. it isn't as um out there as let's say endometriosis ovarian cancer those mm -hmm. are the mm -hmm. big awareness ones mm -hmm. and pcos kind of falls behind our awareness month is september though um when i was diagnosed i found out that this pretty much means that you have these tiny cysts mm -hmm. all over your ovaries mm -hmm. your ovaries are just flooded with them and um your your goal is to get them to shrink because mm -hmm. the more you put yourself at risk for them swelling 
the more that they can get to a point where they can burst. Right. And that's the the most painful thing you could ever experience. You yeah. have to go straight into surgery, all that oh, kind of no. stuff. So the doctor's goal and your goal as well is to get these um, cysts to shrink. Also, if you do let them get bigger, that's what affects your chances of infertility. Mm-hmm. Um, the side effects that I do kind of mention, um, extreme acne, facial growth, uh, because you are producing small levels of testosterone in your body Mm -hmm. so the facial growth the acne everything comes out um severe weight gain Mm -hmm. which is also can also put you at risk for diabetes Mm -hmm. that's also very common with Mm -hmm. people who have pcos because you're not if you don't manage the weight right and um you do get like the bad cramps which i talked about experiencing in the beginning of the story you get irregular periods so you know all of that i mentioned and um in terms of treatment, they put you on birth control to oh. monitor your hormones mm-hmm. and um, to get the cyst at a normal size to shrink. Yes. Mm-hmm. And um, they also put you on metformin, mm-hmm. which is a diabetics medication to keep your sugar levels balanced so that the weight is not, is not increasing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So um, me personally, like I did experience the uh, the weight gain, probably the biggest like aspect of it. Um, so the medication did help, but <laughs> I think like the the birth control is not the most ideal thing. Mm-hmm. Like your mood is like all over the place. Oh, it's yeah. it's ridiculous, and that's what made this experience so much harder at first as well because the mood was just so yeah. so hard to mm-hmm. to for manage. Sure. Mm-hmm. And I know with birth control, sometimes you have to like get off of it for certain certain periods of time, just so mm-hmm. that because it's a lot sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, are you even like allowed to do that with PCOS, or mm-hmm. would that like? It's throw everything out of way. It's highly not recommended. Once oh. you start, um, mm-hmm. it's good to stay on it until you are ready to start having a child. Right. Mm-hmm. And then they, the doctors, will help you get off of it and get mm-hmm. your body like ready mm-hmm. to start. You know the process, but it's mm-hmm. it's really not recommended to do that because, um, like I said, you're putting your your body at risk with the sh- the cysts just mm-hmm. getting bigger mm-hmm. wow Jeez. i didn't know any of that yeah <laughs> thank you right yeah yeah for mm-hmm. sure yeah, and honestly that sounds incredibly painful but i'm so glad that you wrote it in your story so that way other people could also know what's going on yes because right. um, you never know if like anybody's just like listening and they're like hey, exactly yeah, and right. that was my goal with this piece is to bring awareness because uh-huh. um like i explained to professor madrazo I spent, I've been diagnosed for four years now. Right. And I've spent the first year, year and a half, I would say, just like so miserable and just letting like PCOS define who I was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Being ashamed, not telling anybody except for like immediate friends and family, you know, mm-hmm. just dealing with Alvin with it behind closed doors. Right. And no right. one else was really supposed to know about this. It was just something, it was just like a weight mm-hmm. that you carry around. And it's like recently, especially with the timing of like the CNF class and with writing the story and mm-hmm. now with the podcast, it couldn't have come at a better time because like I'm in such a better place right. yeah. and you get to that place where you you accept what this is and you don't let this define you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And instead I do bring awareness because people people don't know. It's such a good way to like let other people know because it's mm-hmm. not just listing off the symptoms, it's your story, right. but like with this ingrained in it so mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. enough to say that like hey i'm a person with this but like i'm also a person you know right mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. that's really good and one of the ways you're able to make it into a story is by 
usually they start with a diagnosis, but for this one, right. you end with the diagnosis, which is a really <laughs> interesting way to go around about mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Talking about the stories now, we're going to go into a little bit more of the technical aspects of it. Uh, the scene that you sandwich the story in, where you're holding your nephew and the nurse asks you if you want children of your own someday, was a fantastic way of bringing everything <laughs> back around again and closing the piece in the same place where you started it. I was wondering if you thought of the scene first and then all the subsequent scenes came after, or whether you had a bunch of different scenes about the topic in mind, and then when the scene of the nurse came in, it kind of tied everything together. Um, okay, so the way I went about this, it started off as a micro-essay, and I did want to write about being with like PCOS. Right. I wasn't sure how I was going to do it. I originally had started in the doctor's office. I started with the do- with the doctor's office uh-huh. being diagnosed. You yes. get no background information. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Professor Madrazo like told me, well, you need to take this a few steps back. Mm-hmm. And so I was trying to think of like what kind of background to bring in. And something that I have experienced like when I was diagnosed is just that because your whole perspective changes on everything, your whole feelings towards just like the norm every day changes. And I would see people passing with strollers or holding their babies. Mm-hmm. And you just, you feel, you know, you get that feeling that that's what you want. And mm-hmm. so my um, my nephew came along around the time when I was first, first got diagnosed. Right. So this was just, this meant everything to me to just hold him because mm-hmm. like, I, I sat there in the hospital room and I just looked at him and I was like, this is what I want someday. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. having the nurse say that to me, at first it gave me mixed feelings and I wasn't able to answer her because I know mm-hmm. what that question means to me. It doesn't right. mean the same as when you ask just like yeah. any yeah. other person. Yeah. It mm-hmm. means something else to me. It means something else to people who have mm-hmm. polycystic fibroids, endometriosis. You know, we take that question differently. Mm-hmm. And it took it. I sat there and I just I couldn't answer her because so many things ran through my head. But then, you know, it's just like there's that there's that hope that mm-hmm. you still have. And it's just like, yes, I do. Like, that is my goal. That mm-hmm. is my mm-hmm. my um end game to all of this is mm-hmm. to just prove that while there is a fight, you know, it's going to happen. Right. Mm-hmm. It's just going to take a while to get there, but it's yeah. going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Ow. <laughs> Sorry. I'm yeah. emotional. <laughs> right. Yeah. That comes across so well in your story. I'm so glad, like, it was written so perfectly, like, yeah. the, from Thank start you. to finish. And it does... Oh my god! Like this. Yeah. This means a lot. To yeah, it's, it's a podcast. Yeah, it's so. <laughs> it's such a beautiful. Yeah, because story. it. It's. I don't know. Like typically, I think what makes it so easy to sometimes dehumanize people is when they not that not like blaming people, but sometimes things suck so much that you dehumanize yourself, mm-hmm. and then people start to dehumanize you even yeah. more. Mm-hmm. So throughout the story, it's like you. From the beginning, from 18 when you met Alvin, you were like, no, this is the guy I'm having kids with and I'm so excited to have oh kids and look at my book. <laughs> the whole thing just, yes. the whole thing the just like killed me. Like with the baby names, like every month you guys changed it yes. up. Exactly. <laughs> friends, exactly. Like, so you were, exactly. So you were this like, just like this rounded human, uh-huh. which is like all of these hopes. And then, of course, the one thing comes that has the potential to tear you down. Yeah. Mm. And the fact that you are so unwilling to let it tear you down is just like important to mm-hmm. me, to, to, to everyone. Mm-hmm. Ah. And especially <laughs> like at the end when you say yes, 
that is right. something that I yeah. want. Like, yeah. Even though you know all this mm-hmm. stuff going on behind the scenes, you're still saying, I want this to happen. And mm-hmm. that just like means so much mm-hmm. right. in the sense of like knowing your background now because you've yeah. made yourself into such a character in the story, mm-hmm. but also getting that firm like, yes, mm-hmm. we're going to try, we're going to make this happen somehow. <laughs> Some way, somehow yeah. this is going to happen. Yeah, exactly. It's it, again, because you're just like, I don't know. Just like those, just like words that you just said, just like tore me down because you were like, it will, it's just gonna take some time. So, usually, when we hear stories like this, it's usually in the perspective of the woman, obviously, because of the biological (laughs) disorder that it is, right? But here, we now have an opportunity to ask uh, the significant other who has been through this with you since you were 18, you said, right? Yeah, so it's been a while. So, if you don't mind, we'd like to ask, how has it been as her significant other through this time? Totally. Um, well, I'll start off with, I guess, you know, when she's in pain, I'm in pain. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not literal pain, obviously, yeah. but it's mm-hmm. still like we have this connection that yeah. I know that something's up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's your human. Yeah. That's your human. And it's like the day I found out I had this sense of positivity. Even though it's such a negative thing to hear right away. But it's that, I guess I look at her and I know that she's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And that we're going to mm-hmm. be okay. Mm-hmm. And then our kids will be okay. Aww. So it's like, Ow. oh my god. <laughs> Fun fact, she said I was going to cry in this. But <laughs> I love it. So, at the end of it, we'll have all of you crying. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, Ow. <laughs> but it's true, you don't really hear the male perspective of yeah. things. Um, I guess the reason being so is that it's a weird topic mm-hmm. um males in my opinion they don't fully understand how a female could feel with this circumstance until they're fully invested in the, a relationship right and with me and lana sometimes i could see people look at us and be like oh they're together since 18 they d- didn't get experience with other people all that jazz but it's like no mm. you know i fell in love with her at a young age and i'm still in love with her and um it's like I know when there's something wrong. Right. Yeah. And I know that there's going to be a solution no matter what. Mm-hmm. And I'm not leaving, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're kind of in yeah, it for the long I'm run, dude. We have names for me. Yeah. So, <laughs> once that's down, you got to yeah. say so. That's fair. Oh yeah. Um, with that, thank you both so much for being thank here. You. Thank you guys so much for having me. This has been truly one of the best experiences, especially through this journey of me mm-hmm. like battling with my PCOS and just reaching such a better place in my life. Mm-hmm. And this just really helped with the coping process. And, you know, through this piece, I really just aim to bring about awareness for mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. And this just, this just really helped me. So thank you so much. Oh, thank, thank you so, so much. For having thank you. <laughs> This story is by an author who is choosing to remain anonymous. When asked to write this bio, Anonymous realized that she has no idea who she is. A panic attack ensued, but then she realized that at least she knows that much. When she's not eating cookies or onion dip straight from the jar with her bare hands, she's attempting a career on stage or maintaining extremely codependent relationships with her best friends. Thank you, Selena. Let's take a listen to her piece entitled, Not Me. He thinks you're cute, my friend Alyssa said. Really? I said, feigning modesty. At this point, I had no real proof, just a gut feeling and the kind of all-encompassing blind confidence that comes with theatrical employment. Yeah, she said, and he's coming today. Him and I had spent one very enjoyable January night together at a bar. 
it was one of those nights where everything comes together and all your friends end up in the same place at once. I hadn't seen him since the previous summer, though he'd occurred to me one time during that six months when, in a lazy introvert's attempt at networking or flirting or whatever it was, I wished him a happy birthday on his Facebook wall. That night, we saw each other again. I was feeling sparkly in my best jeans, a little high, and coming off a disappointing, if not slightly violating, sexual experience from the night prior. He was vivacious and straight, a dangerous combination in the musical theater world. We talked and drank and smoked, and I felt like something was starting. Now, a week later, along with most of my close friends, we got together on a very cold afternoon to hand out sandwiches to the homeless in Midtown. I was there hoping to see him, and he was there hoping to see me. We talked, flirted, and despite the developing romantic tension, even had time to hand out a few peanut butter sandwiches. Later that night, we discussed what piano chord I was, and he kissed me. It was around this time that I realized how much we had in common— Both of us were in musical theater and found comfort being the youngest person in any given room. He composed, and his music was really good, a perennial turn-on for me. We were both the children of musicians. We believed our fathers hung the moon and were grateful for the abilities they'd given us. He'd write things, and then I would sing them. It felt symbiotic and so meant to be. We spent the next few months constantly missing each other. Him unsure of what he wanted from me, me positive but scared to ask because millennial hookup culture doesn't really allow for the proclamation of genuine feeling, plus what if he didn't reciprocate? In my mind, he was a tortured artist, a Capricorn who was only focused on his career. Just like me, he didn't want to waste time on frivolous things. Still, I felt that he must have such deep feeling for me that it made him uncomfortable and therefore he couldn't spend too much time with me because who knows where it would lead. He might lose focus. I understood this concern completely. It was one of the many things that brought us together. I knew from our discussions that he had the same blind ambition as me. I'd always dated guys who didn't care enough to try. In this way, he was the only one I'd met that I felt really understood me. Needless to say, I was falling deeper and deeper, and he wasn't coming with me. Or was he? After each disappointment, I would announce to my friends that I was done that I could no longer cope with the indecisiveness and romantic gray areas he had forced us into. Like clockwork, he would find a way to make it better with a long, apologetic late-night voicemail or a kiss in the dark corner of a party. I was frustrated, but with both of us being in our early 20s, I decided that we had lots of time to figure it out. Why was I rushing him? Him and I felt like an inevitability, and at 24, he just wasn't ready for something like this that could be long-term and serious. The possibility of us was too intense. For months, we texted. He would invite me places, then flake out at the last moment. I would always follow and make excuses. Trying to find a time to see him became a part-time job. So after months of courtship, when we finally slept together for the first time, I was beside myself with joy. That night, he called me from his skateboard to confirm the address of my studio where he'd only been once before. I coached him down avenues of the Upper West Side, pointing out personal landmarks from my childhood. That's where I went to school, and that's the first house I ever lived in, I said as he sped down 88th Street. When he arrived, he promised we wouldn't sleep together. He said, if we can get through the whole night without having sex, we'll be best friends. We talked in my bed for hours as I wound my fingers into the tight coils of his unruly blonde hair. We discussed his father, who'd recently passed away, an ex who had hurt him, and both of our impressive musical prowesses in regards to our hopes for the future— He said I shouldn't fall in love with him, 
that he was bad for me and not in a fun, stereotypic rom-com kind of way, but in a real way that meant I should squelch whatever it was I was feeling for him. I'm not sure if he knew, but it was already too late. Besides, that night, it was obvious he cared about me too. As the night stretched into the early morning hours, it seemed as if we would keep our promise, forging a friendship in the process. This wasn't good enough for me. He turned his back to me. Good night, he sleepily exhaled. I want you inside of me, I said breathlessly. That night, he was totally present. Next to me, in my bed, on my body, and incapable of ghosting me or canceling plans. Not since my last very long-term relationship, which had ended a few months before, had I felt this safe and understood. He was invigorating, but also somehow incredibly familiar. In the morning, I woke up before him and watched as his chest rose and fell while he slept. I was aware that he battled insomnia, and I felt a certain sense of pride that he was able to sleep so comfortably next to me into the late morning hours. That, to me, was real intimacy. Around 11.30, he woke up. You really opened me up last night, he said. I couldn't believe how lucky I was to finally have him here with me with no distraction. We parted ways soon after, but this felt like a milestone. He'd felt the same connection I had. At his suggestion, the following week, we got together for a walk in the park. We sat on damp swings in an empty playground on a uniquely rainy June day, and before I even thought it through, I was inviting him back to my apartment. We walked there together, but then he made excuses as to why he couldn't come in. My friend is staying at my place, plus I'm on my period, he joked. Did he not want sex? What guy doesn't want sex? As women, we spend so much time assuming the only thing men want from us is sex. When that's where our self-worth lies, how are we supposed to feel when a guy doesn't even want that? I felt profoundly rejected. It was difficult not to take this personally, although he assured me it had nothing to do with me or us or our night together. He was sorry, but circumstance just prevented it. I had to have more pride than that, but really? After all that, you don't want to come in, I thought to myself. Maybe this is how he was different, though. I thought to myself, maybe he was different. He wasn't keeping me in his life just for sex. We hugged at 96th and parted ways. After that, though, it seemed over. I think I'd seen something that few people saw and it made things strange between us, or maybe he'd gotten what he wanted and therefore had little need for me anymore. I'd flip-flop between the two for the next several months, often saying to friends, it either meant too much or nothing at all. As summer turned to fall and more months passed between interactions, I expected my feelings to shift, but they didn't. I thought of him every day and would sometimes put my phone on Do Not Disturb, hoping I would check it in a few hours to find that he'd reached out to say hi, or that he needed someone to sing a demo recording, or simply that he was thinking of me. During this time, I astounded myself with my seemingly infinite capacity to pine. When I was asked to sing at a concert with a mutual friend in October, I was mostly just excited to be doing something that, that would perhaps get featured in an Instagram story he might see. My friend and I sat in the holding room prior to our performance and bonded further by discussing disastrous ex-boyfriends. She had heard about my tryst the summer prior, but now having all the details, decided to confide in me. Did you hear about the allegations against him, she said. I sat dumbfounded, with my tinted brow furrowed and my lip-glossed mouth hanging open. He's being accused of rape, she said. It was the week after the Me Too movement started taking over social media. It was everywhere. The hashtag crowded our Facebooks and Instagrams and Twitters, opening a dialogue about assault and harassment. 
It was empowering and amazing. Everyone was finally talking about something that has happened to all of us. Four people have come out of the woodwork to accuse him publicly of sexual misconduct. It's serious. Not only had I considered a relationship with this man, I'd thought of little else for months. I'd never felt so wrong about someone. Truthfully, I was shocked and very unlike myself at a loss for words. The worst thing about this was... The first feelings I could identify were those of sympathy for him, which was completely inappropriate given the situation and my own political leanings. But before I could even stop myself, I blurted out, I know he's complete garbage, but he's not a rapist. He couldn't be, right? No. I just couldn't make sense of it. How could someone who'd spent so many months being gleefully sought after also enjoy taking advantage of girls who are so under both age and influence? He's being named on Facebook and Instagram, she said, almost apologetically, thankfully understanding my heartbreak and without judging me for my initial response. She handed me her phone while she ran to the restroom. I read screenshot after screenshot of former college friends of his accusing him of rape. Rape? Really? My heart raced. On the way home, I take my emotional temperature like I've learned to do from a decade plus of therapy. Am I happy his life will be ruined? Will his life be ruined? Was there any foul play involved in our ill-fated sexual encounter that I had failed to recognize? He had rejected my advances a hundred times. Him taking advantage of someone else didn't seem possible. I call my best friend on my brisk walk home 40 blocks away as I try to clear my head. Can you imagine if you'd gotten what you wanted, she said? You'd have to break up. You'd be dating a rapist. This thought rang clear to me. I was so mad for so long that he couldn't see what was right in front of him. He was the greatest thing I'd never have. How embarrassing. Having to tell my parents and my oldest friend Emma, a survivor of assault herself, that this man I'd brought into our lives was capable of such gross evil. The next day, I wake up to a text from Alyssa. Things have gotten worse. Now there's an Instagram post with over a hundred likes naming him as a sexual predator. I'm not sure how to feel. I was raised in a liberal house by a single mom. Rape is rape. There isn't a gray area. If we didn't have history, I wouldn't be giving this a second thought. He would be guilty, and that would be it. Just another chauvinist pig. And besides, given how carelessly he'd strung me along, shouldn't this feel like a karmic win? I run to my friend Emma's to discuss this with her. All men are capable of it, she argues. Well, I'm not sure if I believe that. What about my father or my ex-boyfriend of three years with whom I was so comfortable we would regularly pick each other's noses? Surely he is exempt from this rule. What about every future man I choose to be with? What does my romantic future look like when every man I'm interested in could be a rapist? Am I a traitor to my gender? To all survivors of rape and assault to think, to hope that maybe the allegations aren't true? Two percent of accused rapes are fake. The rest are real. Why would she lie? And what was the severity? What were the circumstances? Was he drunk too? Did she pass out during the act? And why does it matter? Why do women challenge each other? Why does the man always have to be the person that wins, that we jump to defend? And why are most of them totally unaware of their societally bestowed, culturally ingrained privilege? And OMG, am I glad we never officially dated. But as this feminist tirade runs through my brain, so too does my genuine concern for him. What is it like to hear your phone vibrate and immediately assume the worst? What if he's changed? What if he apologizes? How do I help him get a lawyer when we haven't spoken in months? 
I draft a text to him saying that I know I shouldn't, but I feel for him. And I hope this resolves itself because he's not a totally bad guy and doesn't deserve to have his life destroyed. But I never send the text. I can't. A few weeks later, we run into each other at a house party on Halloween. He looks tired, but he always looks tired. Like I said, he has insomnia. It's part of his intellectual charm. Who's ever fallen in love with a man who gets a full eight hours? I touch his elbow and explain my misplaced sympathy for him. He seems to appreciate it, and he tells me he's missed talking to me. And maybe I'm stupid and naive, or maybe I'm just hopeful because I believe him. And maybe he's actually a psychopath, as opposed to just being one in a funny way. You know, that thing you say to friends about men who've wronged you. Or maybe I'm right, and I didn't fall in love in a vacuum. And he really does in some way miss me. Or at the very least, misses having someone pretty and smart to kick around and use for his emotional labor. When I get home around 1.30, I have a text from him saying I made his night. I fall asleep and I dream about what it might be like to sleep with him again. After everything, how would it feel to give control of my body over to someone who ultimately has so little respect for it? In my dream, it feels great. So when he texts me the following day asking to hang out and talk, I'm excited. What does this mean? Are we starting up again? That's when I realize what I think he realized the night before during our run-in in costume. That I would have stayed with him through the Instagrams and the Facebook posts, through all the allegations. If I'm really honest with myself, I might have been there maintaining his innocence and making him feel capable of goodness. Through the gossip and the blows to my reputation, I would have, might have, stayed. And we would have thrived in the conflict. After all, I am best in a crisis. I respond to his text immediately. No more waiting a half hour to seem busier than I am. No more games. I say nonchalantly that I'm in rehearsal till around 8.30, but after, I would love to see him. And just like that, it's sent, it's out there, and I can't take it back. He knows he can still have me. Five hours later, it's way after 8.30, and it's clear I won't hear from him. I have offered myself to an accused rapist, offered to shoulder his emotional burden and really be there for him, and he ghosted me. Again. The games, the other girls, the bizarrely weird morning after, and even the accusations of rape. I stayed emotionally invested through all of it. Emma would say, this was a lesson to protect your heart, not to be so nice. Don't expect so much from men because they will only disappoint you. But how am I supposed to live a life like that? A year after that night at the bar, all feelings of sentimentality toward the time we shared have faded. Does his general disrespect for women and their bodies make our brief affair mean any less? I'm honestly not sure. But what I do know is that it's not about me. There's a reason why you don't hear from or about the women who've had pleasurable, consensual sex with accused rapists. There's no need for us to chime in. Regardless of the verdict, guilty or not, our narrative is irrelevant. There's no need for us to chime in. Regardless of the verdict, guilty or not, our narrative is irrelevant. My experience with him doesn't negate anyone else's. And I feel for the girls he's hurt, who, like my friend Emma, will probably now feel incapable of giving over control and trusting someone again. And me, for the first time in a long time, 
I'm finally not concerned about what I'm missing anymore. Because even after everything, I know I am one of the lucky ones. <laughs> okay. Every time we go into like like the listener noise, we're always like, that was such an amazing strike. <laughs> <laughs> but for this, it's like, wow. <laughs> Tell me I'm wrong. Like, we always like, thank you. Really beautiful. Thank you. That is so sharing. nice. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But with this, it's like, fucking, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's just like, ah. It's like, and that's, that's yeah. how you do it. Yeah. <laughs> basically yeah but thank you for coming here thank you for sharing this yeah i know it was like hard for you to share it at all because i think it'd be hard for anyone to share this at all to admit these kinds of things and complicated feelings you know being honest you know of course of course (laughs) there's so much happening in this story but it's all so clearly written and even though we're getting these detailed descriptions of your thoughts and emotions during these months all complicated all varied but in this literary structure that is so easy to follow how did you go about writing in this way do you have any experience oh i have no experience um i was so um i was so sort of afraid of creative writing of any kind in elementary school that my tutor and i would make a book of creative writing ideas so i wouldn't have to think of anything off the top of my head (laughs) Um, I could use yeah, them. I know. It, like, right. it was so it was <laughs> yeah. so daunting to me, like coming up with something. I it, I'd been sitting on it, this experience, and sitting on my feelings for him for such a long time mm-hmm. that it all just kind of flew out of me. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. I had a chance to read it to my friends, and they were like, and they'd been there through the entire thing. So mm-hmm. I really, I told the story from start to finish so many times that mm-hmm. it was really it was already in my the the structure of it was already in my brain, and I think that's yeah. why it was able to. It, it came out so kind of easy mm-hmm. to understand because mm-hmm. I'd explained it so many times. Yeah, yeah, that's what it felt like when I was um, listening to it. Like, as if you were sitting down and we were just having a conversation about it. It wasn't like mm-hmm. extra, like you're trying <laughs> to like play it out. It was just like, let me tell you about this experience. Yeah. In the first sure. draft, I made it extremely clear that it was not going to work out, that like mm-hmm. this was this was not something that ended happily. Um, and I think that was my natural instinct of being self-deprecating. Like, don't worry, guys. Like, I know. I know it's all really bad. Like, I know he did this. And I know he did this, but like it doesn't work out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then going back, realizing that it's a much more interesting story if you're mm-hmm. reading it with the perspective of the first. Co- it's pretty long, yeah. weirdly. Um, if you're reading it with the perspective of, oh my god, is this girl? Is this gonna happen? Yeah. yeah. And there were so many it's like just a love story. Yeah. Right? And there were so many times when I was with him before I found out that mm-hmm. of what he'd been accu- of what he was being accused of of what he did and yeah. Um, I thought it was going to work out. There had been so many times when I was with my friends in multiple contexts at a party or just mm-hmm. hanging out and he would be so attentive um, and they would say to him or to I like, is it is it starting up again? Are you guys going to sort of do it? Actually try for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that was an important thing for the reader and the listener to yeah. also be unsure of like is maybe it's yeah. just a mm-hmm. like kind of fucked up love story yeah exactly right. maybe he's good mm-hmm. <laughs> and like reading this it, it just feels so it feels like it's gonna be so relatable and i know for a lot of people it will be but it feels like is it gonna work out and i remember like reading it at first um and just i did really and i was like oh my yeah. goodness been through it girl it's not gonna happen it's just yeah it's, so it's, complicated. It's, a con- <laughs> it's a cautionary tale yeah mm-hmm. like and then it, it mm-hmm. takes this turn into it's so much more than me right. mm-hmm. 
yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, his his issues and his shortcomings have nothing to do with me. I was just this like vessel. I was being used and it had literally nothing to do with me. And I yeah. realized that like months after I can finally be like, oh my God, everything that happened, had I could have been mm-hmm. anyone, honestly. Yeah, you were yeah. just like caught in the crossfire. Totally, right. yeah, exactly. Like, you were just one of the ones that... W- was not a casualty mm-hmm. you know what i mean mm-hmm. when we talk about like a disaster sometimes we don't say 50 million survived we say 18 dead you know yeah you're right you're totally right yeah. yeah you're you're just in the pool that is just lucky it's just lucky that we don't get to talk to you um yeah but we are we are talking to you yeah. <laughs> i mean like in general no, but, but we are absolutely. talking to you because it's an important story too because mm-hmm. we never yeah. talk about these people mm-hmm. like yeah, we never talk about no, them there's no representation and I don't think that there needs to be, but as someone like Mm. right after it had happened, I was so, I was just looking for some way to feel because Mm -hmm. everything I was hearing from friends or from my my mother who I spoke to about it was like, oh my God, that's awful. Like that's the end of it. Like, yeah. But I, I wanted to hear what other women like me had thought. Like, I didn't want to hear from women who, who stood by their their husbands or their boyfriends yeah. and were like, he's a good man. Like, he's mm-hmm. fine. I wanted to hear from people that were like, wow, I, I like, loved this person that I, I shouldn't have loved regardless. But mm-hmm. now I feel kind of guilty for, yeah. for, mm-hmm. for, for, for having those feelings in the first place. Yeah. There's, yeah, there's so much of it. And going further into the nitty gritty, mm-hmm. this, as we said, this is a very disturbing realization. And the aspects surrounding your life in that sense, made the pill harder to swallow. And socially, there's so much happening right now Mm -hmm. with the Me Too movement and with women and men coming forward and sharing their stories of the ugly nature of well-respected men. And some of these men are ones that have had people fall in love with them. And some of these men have met someone in a bar and instantly vibed. And some of these men have had women invite them back to their apartment and they've respectfully said no. And that was the end of it. Exactly. Um, So in your story, during your wrestle with this reality of who this guy is, you mentioned like, what about your father? Like, what about your boyfriend of three years? Mm. Like, like surely not them. So can you talk a little bit about the importance with acknowledging that a rapist can be anyone, like regardless of our personal experiences yeah. with them? I think no one, nobody wants to believe that the person, that, that the men that are, that are in our orbit, that we're the most associated with are, are capable of something so bad, especially when when you're a woman and you're liberal and like you've had so many friends who've been through such terrible things and even I mean sure all of us have had experiences something bad's happened to everyone Mm. which is so unfortunate and so bad but like I don't want to think about experiences that have happened to me while babysitting for someone and the dad's creepy like did my father do that to a babysitter with me which it just it brings up I'm kind of dancing around the question but it brought up the fact that this guy who all I'd heard was like, oh, he's so nice. Like, he's a great guy. Mm-hmm. Like, you two would get along so well. Like, mm-hmm. that was all I heard for so long. You have so much in common. Um, like, it'll work out. He really likes you. Mm-hmm. You're so cute together. Yeah, exactly. Like, you make, su- like- you make such a good couple. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, I don't think you should go into every situation with a man assuming that he's oh. done something like mm-hmm. that. But yeah. I think knowing that it could be anybody. Mm-hmm. Because just some just just because somebody treats you some some one way and turns you down, just because someone is a great father who supports you, just because someone is a boyfriend that you were with for years and years who who was so respectful and like 
cared for you so deeply just because they're capable of that i don't know that that that's an indicator that i don't know that just because someone's great in many respects i don't know that that means they're not capable of of something creepy of of something yeah. assaulty and i i think that that's important to remember so we're not surprised and devastated mm-hmm. but i don't yeah. think that yeah. it needs to be at the forefront of every interaction exactly. we have right. with a man for the rest of our lives yeah, yeah. right cuz like <laughs> patriarchy has no um knows no bounds honestly yeah knows no <laughs> bounds it ha- no one is victimless yeah. from it mm-hmm. and I, I, yeah, it's 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 just like a thing where it's like, okay, we are continuing to be like super surprised. And then there's the people that are like, what do you mean you're surprised? Like everyone is horrible. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't exactly. think we as a society can right. necessarily no. think that way. And and maybe maybe it's just a discussion. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. happened and I called my ex-boyfriend who I'm still so close with. And I was like, do you think you're capable of it? Has anything happened to you? Has there mm-hmm. be, Have there been experiences where you've felt like you took advantage of someone? Wow. Mm-hmm. And he was like, I can't say there was, but I'd be lying if I said that I couldn't see myself getting too drunk with a girl and going farther than I should have exactly. and not feeling bad about that. Exactly. I think that like maybe that can be a discussion. Mm-hmm. It's uncomfortable, but maybe maybe that's if if that's something you feel comfortable saying and that's an important that's important to you that that's something you can say to the, the men that you're close to. Mm-hmm. Um That's true. Yeah. It's yeah, because patriarchy doesn't give men the opportunity to admit fault in that way or admit mm. bad mm. thought right. yeah. yeah exactly yeah. or self-reflect exactly. so it's like and that's why it's so incredible when they do like when you hear a guy being like i really i really was i was wrong like mm. i did i did this and should i have done that probably not but i regret it and i've apologized and i'm trying to move forward mm-hmm. yeah um yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I i think a little bit differently in that respect in that oh um, please i'm like trying it, to see that uh, the good in people yeah but like i think way. we have to no. it's a survival thing it's, you it's know? like it's so self-preservation you know mm-hmm. um but i re- i 100 respect like should we be patting men on the back for saying when they're wrong <laughs> probably yeah. not but you know <laughs> yeah for sure yeah. it's like um yeah we don't reward a fish for swimming no (laughs) it's it's just like a thing we notice when it doesn't and i yeah i I don't know yeah so you might have already answered this but is there anything you want your listeners to take away from this story i think i'd want i want there to be a i would love there to be a representation so like even if even if one person who felt the way i felt like hears this and knows that like you're not like you're not gross because Mm -hmm. you did something with someone that that isn't a good person Mm. like there's nothing there's nothing you're not you're not a, you're not a worse person for loving someone that mm. that's capable of something so so bad mm. um and i think i think really the more i talk about it with you guys i think they're like there is i was i felt so negatively about it for so long and i really just couldn't understand why he wasn't able to see what was what was right there I think that there is like a, there is a note of optimism that like I can't I have the information now and I've been through the experience but and I will let it affect how I handle relationships going forward but I don't want to I don't want to view men as all bad mm-hmm. because that's that's not a way to to have a healthy love life to have a healthy sex life and I hope that people can listen to it and connect to it and feel a little bit better about their own situation, knowing that someone else went through it and came out on the other end a little bit smarter, a little bit more informed, and a little bit happier. 
Yeah, Mm -hmm. for sure. Because in it, you talk about things that are definitely like unable to be helped. Like you can't necessarily help that you are Mm -hmm. just like so enthralled with this guy, like for months and months. And it's just that thing of just like a heart wants what it wants. But then you, yeah. And then you also acknowledge like the parts that are just like so like human. It's just like, I'm sorry. I knew and I still went for it and I kind of suck. Yeah. But, no, I really yeah. and it's okay to say that you like yeah. suck <laughs> um and that and that's and that's difficult because you were just so so like and i think there's so many people that aren't willing to acknowledge that they themselves all they needed like was that person's attention if that mm-hmm. person would mm-hmm. would have gone back for them like it would have been a different thing and then they would be like you said earlier those women that stood by their husbands and were like yeah. i believe mm-hmm. them and and, and Ivanka get, fucking I, trips of the world yes <laughs> and i think there's a way to like i think there's a way to be like yes he did this he was wrong i think it's really like in I think I under I understand the reasons that they do the things they mm-hmm. do, and I I, th- I think there's a way of handling it, and there's a way of not handling it. There's mm-hmm. a way I think denying that someone's done something is completely wrong because chances yeah. are, if, if if people are saying things, something happened, yeah. even yeah. if it was smaller than what people are saying. Mm-hmm. There's a way to handle the situation, and it's it's with a lot of modesty mm-hmm. and a lot of honesty. Mm-hmm. I hope that if someone hears this who's been through a similar situation, they they just feel less alone, and they just they feel like they can talk about it with friends doesn't yeah. have to be something you're ashamed of because like you love who you love and you really can't you can't mm-hmm. change that even if they are and maybe there's something psychological about that of like <laughs> loving someone who you just like shouldn't it's so bad for me <laughs> but i think it's you know it's important that we all know we're allowed to mm-hmm. feel what we feel yeah mm-hmm. it's a larger conversation that we mm-hmm. definitely like dug at a little bit today yes. so we want to thank you so much for coming yes, today yes, thank you thank you so yeah. much thank you for your honesty thank yeah. you for the story thank you That concludes our sixth episode of the season, Best Laid Plans. We are all so excited to bring you new stories in the coming months, amplifying these younger voices from backgrounds you don't normally hear about in creative nonfiction. You can always find out more at www.lifeoutloudpodcast.com or by searching Life Out Loud Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or YouTube. We also have an Instagram and Facebook if you want to get some behind-the-scenes content. We'd also like to thank everyone who helps make this possible including our sound engineers and editors, our episode writers, our website developers, everyone behind the scenes here at Life Out Loud. And to our audience, we hope you love these stories as much as we did. It was a joy to bring them to you. A very special thank you to everyone listening in. We'll see you soon and good night!